You could break this text up into two sections, and that's how I'm going to preach through it today. You've got verses 1 through 6, and then verses 7 through 16. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 is, we'll read about, study, a terrible plan. And that is a that is an, an understatement. Okay, one of the worst plans ever conceived in, in your Bible here. A terrible plan. And then the second section is regarding the God who sees and hears it all. And how God comes into the middle of this plan and engages with the people involved and interacts with the people involved. It's kind of surprising. So let me pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for giving us another opportunity to read Your Word. But God, our hopes are a lot higher than just reading and understanding words today. Some of us know that these words are from You. And we know that there is truth here. Truth about us. Truth about You. The most important truth in the universe. We need to understand that there is more at stake here. That we're not just reading a story, but we are reading truth that is for life. And God, You know that we... We will not get that. We will not understand that unless Your Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts and helps us to understand things that are spiritually discerned. So God, don't let us be a people who just nod our heads today. Don't let us be a people who are just outwardly engaged, who are reading and understanding words, but may we be a people today who are reading and understanding truth. And if it needs to be sharp, God, I pray that it would be sharp in a way that that injures us for our good, that, that, that causes us to want to love You more, want to obey You more, want to serve You more, want to worship You more. God, ultimately, we know that everything, everything is is moving toward worshiping You. You're God. We're not. The more we get that, the more we understand that, how great You are, how good You are, how loving You are. God, worship is what naturally comes from us to You. We want You to be glorified, God. We want You to be honored. You deserve it. You are owed it. So God, use this truth as kindling in these fires in our souls so that worship comes from us and goes to You. That our affections would deepen. That, that our, our adoration would expand. That our worship would be heartfelt and genuine and sincere. So help us get this, God. Help us see where our plans can go horribly wrong. And may we take a a rebuke from that and learn a bit about faithfulness and trusting You. And God, may we be reminded 
in our shame, our guilt, our sorrow. May we be reminded of your great comfort. That you are a God who sees and you are a God who hears. You have the best eyes. You have the best ears. You see, you hear, you love your people. So minister to us, please, through your word and by your spirit. And we ask this with all the confidence in the world because we ask it as you taught us to in the name of the name above all names. Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please open your Bible to Acts, Acts, Genesis chapter 16. You wish. (laughs) Genesis chapter 16. We'll start just reading the first half of verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Ten years before this, God made a promise. God made a promise. He came to this couple and he promised that he was going to grant the desire of Abram and Sarai's hearts. The desire of their heart to have children. Okay, in Abram and Sarai's day, everyone wanted to have children. Okay, we've got our own issues. They had their own issues. But one of our issues that we have that they did not struggle with in the same way is they always saw children as a good thing. Children are a blessing. This is true. This is what the Bible teaches. Children are a blessing. Children are a reward from God. So where there are children, there is blessing. Where there are children, there is love from God. We are a loved church, apparently. Because there are lots of children around here. Abram and Sarah wanted to have children. It would have been a great desire of their hearts. Never seeing children as a curse. Never seeing children as a curse. Today it's up for grabs. Are children a blessing or are children a curse? It's up to you to decide. But there is transcendent truth that teaches us no children are always a reward. They're always a blessing. And so you handle them okay, before they're born, after they're born. You handle them as gifts from God. Image bearers of God. Not curses. Well, if it's a good kid... It'll be a blessing. If it's a bad kid, it's a curse. They disobey me, they're a curse. It may feel like a curse. They're a blessing, a blessing from the Lord. People today determine whether or not or when they're going to have children very selfishly most of the time. And the decision is made to have children when and only when we think that children are going to somehow enhance my life. Going to fix my problems, fix my issues, make things better. And then when that time has come, then we pursue children. The rest of the time, the rest of the time, we avoid them 
we prevent them, we kill them. Abram and Sarai had a desire in their hearts. And the desire was that God would grant them children. But ten years ago, when that promise was made to them, that they would have children, I'm sure they had all but given up on getting pregnant. Because you remember when God's promise first came to Abram and Sarai, remember how old they were? He was 75. She was 65. I doubt any of you know any 75 and 65-year-old couples that are holding out for pregnancy. That is not on the radar anymore. So there was a desire of their heart, and they've had to learn how to live and function and have joy uh, without this particular desire of their heart being granted. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you, in the case of children, some of you wanted to have children, never could have children. Some of you, there's other desires of your hearts that you want. Seems like a good thing. God should have granted it in your mind. He didn't. And you've had to reconcile that and figure out how to to go without that. Well, that's where Abram and Sarai were when God first came to them and promised that they were going to have a child. Given up on, on, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's an, it's an impossibility at, at this point. Abram had to learn to just live with the, remember this too, Abram had to learn to live with the perpetual embarrassment of his name. His name meant father of many. You can imagine countless introductions between him and others where, where he would meet somebody and they would ask him his name in a day when names all had meaning and they meant something and told you something about the person and his name was father of many. What's your name? Well, my name is Abram. Abram, what a great name. But what would have been the follow-up questions? Tell me about your family. And can you imagine how painful it would have been over and over and over and over again for Abram to be asked, so how many, how many children do you have? Well, actually, I don't have any children. Just perpetual embarrassment that he had to live with. Resigned to the fact that I guess this isn't going to happen for us. We're not going to have this blessing. So what did God do, though? God came 10 years ago from chapter 16, verse 1. God came 10 years ago and he got their hopes up. He got their hopes up. Because he came to Abram and he made a promise. And the promise was, you're going to have a child. This is God talking, so maybe maybe a miracle is possible. Maybe this is going to happen. We've all but given up, but now there's an adjustment. Now there's excitement. You can imagine Abram coming home and telling her this. God came and made him the promise in chapter 12, and then he reminds him in chapter 15. What does he tell Abram? He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Nation, that means there's going to be children. That's going to mean there's going to be kids. That means we're going to have a, a child. That's right, Abram. I'm going to give you children. Many children. Look at the stars. That many children. And then he reminds him again in chapter 15 when Abram, a few years have gone by and there's no child, and he's thinking, is my inheritance just going to go to a member of my household? And God says, no, let me remind you of my promise that I made to you several years ago. You shall have a son. 
So both times, right? Here's Abram coming home to his wife and saying, God said it. That settles it. I, I know it's hard. I know it's an impossible thing. I know we can't even fathom how, this, how God could work this way, but he's telling me that he's going to give us a child. But now we're at the point where that was 10 years ago. 10 years ago. In our text today, Abram is 85 years old. Sarai is 75 years old. And God has not yet fulfilled this promise. God has not yet come through. Here's something to keep in mind. We've said it generally before, but let me say it more specifically. This is true. The fulfillment of God's promises will be threatened and often sovereignly delayed. If you're a Christian, if you're an adopted son or daughter of God, child of God, you're a member of His family. And one of the ways that God communicates His love to you as His child and His love to me as His child is He makes promises. Tons of them. Over and over and over again. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. But then often in our lives, it doesn't look like those promises are true. It doesn't look like those promises are, are getting fulfilled. It looks like they're never going to be fulfilled. It looks like it's never going to go the way that God says it's going to go. And we see that what happens is things threaten the fulfillment of those promises. Now, we say threaten, not thwart. So it's very different. Very different. So it is true, the fulfillment of God's promises will be threatened, but that does not mean that God's promises will ever be thwarted. They will never be thwarted. But it will look like they are. Okay, things will happen that will look like God's promises are not true or they're not going to come true. And often, some of you are like all the time, the fulfillment of his promises is sovereignly delayed. Sovereignly. It's God delaying them. It's not God, you know, getting thrown curveballs and he's got to readjust his plan. And I'm sorry, this is going to take a little longer. My projections weren't accurate. That's not that kind of a delay. It's God sovereignly delaying. God just telling us, some of you know, I'm going to take my time on this one. I'm going to just, I'm going to work this out over a long period of time. Now, here's what we know. We know that if God's promises were not threatened, then God would not get to show Himself as mighty. Okay, so why? Why? Why God? Why don't you just? God, I would do this so differently. Don't lie. I know you think that sometimes. I would do this so differently. In fact, I'm going to pray that you do it differently. God allows His promises to be threatened so that He can show Himself as mighty. There's no getting around this in God's story. God means to show His people that he is a conqueror. That he wins. And so there are threats and there are enemies in the Christian life. 
And God allows those enemies to work. God allows those evils to befall us. God allows the suffering to happen. God allows things to look like they're on the brink. He allows the fulfillment of those promises to be threatened, but never thwarted. And He allows that to happen so that when He comes and fulfills the promise, it, it, it defeats everything that threatened it. And so it displays how powerful and mighty He is. And if there weren't any of those threats... Okay, you might wonder, is God mighty or not? Is God strong or not? But he means to show us that he is a great conqueror. This is what Jesus meant when he gave up his spirit on the cross and said, it is finished. What was finished? Satan is conquered. That's what was finished. My work to come and to win. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, I won. And he showed himself as mighty. Oh, but he's dead. He's in a tomb. I guess he didn't win. Three days later, rose from the dead. Showed himself to many. Said, look at my hands. It didn't work. He didn't win. But if, if ever the fulfilling of his promises looked threatened, it was when Jesus died on the cross. And yet that was his moment of victory. So God allows His promises to be threatened that He may show Himself is, is mighty. And then this, in regards to God sovereignly delaying, and, and I'm saying this from experience. Here's what I've learned in my life. And that is, if God does not tarry, okay, if He does not delay the way He does, then I do not need Him or love Him as I ought to. So in other words... God delaying and, and not just coming in and saving the day in the way I want Him to do it, when I want Him to do it, taking the sickness, taking the disease, restoring the relationship, getting the job, removing the circumstances, bringing in the money, changing the church, whatever it is, whatever it is that you want and it's a good thing that you want and you're just waiting for God to do it and He tarries, He takes His sweet time and doesn't come in and doesn't, do what you want Him to do when you want Him to do it, what He's doing, I've learned, is He's teaching me how to need Him and how to love Him. And I find that's what's best for me. What's best for me, it's so hard to say, but what's best for me, what makes me need God more, what makes me love God more, is that He often sovereignly delays the fulfilling of His promises. Now, if I'm keeping it totally real, I do not pray for God to do that. I do not say, God, I see that I am sanctified by you taking your time with me and sovereignly delaying the fulfillment of your promises and keeping me in difficult circumstances and grieving me with trials. I see that you sanctify me through them. So, God, please delay. Take your time. I don't care when you come. No one thinks that way. Unless you're sick. Okay, the prayer is now, yesterday, 
five minutes ago. I'm, I'm breaking loose. I'm unraveling. Come and, and, and do this now. Fulfill your promises now. That's what we want. That's what we desire. But then we clearly see. We clearly see. Christians, you know. That oftentimes the sweetest thing God is doing for us. Is saying not yet. Not yet. I'll let you go a little more. But what does he say? But I'm coming. I'm coming. But he tarries. He delays. Because he loves us. So we must be patient. God, sanctify me now. That's what we want. No one wants long, drawn-out sanctification. No one wants that. We want quick sanctification. God, you are, you are conforming me to the image of Christ, you tell me. You're making me more like Jesus. You're, you're, you're painting. If my life is a painting, you're, you're painting me. And in the end, I'm going to look just like Jesus. And I, I wish you would paint faster. Paint faster. You're God. You, should, you could paint like crazy. Paint quickly. Just make, get a copy machine and there's Jesus and put me on there and just copy me tomorrow today and God does not do that so I, I say this in, in part to just bring some normalcy to your life friends this is this is how God works you see I'm suffering and these promises are these feel like they're being threatened and okay well this is how God works well I've been I've been I've been praying for this for a long time I've been asking for this for a long time and God still hasn't answered my prayer in the way I want Him to. He still hasn't fulfilled this promise in the way that I would have expected Him to. And so I'm wondering, and I'm questioning, and I'm worrying. And then we say, well, you will stop it. Don't worry. Don't question. Okay? This is the way God works. Well, here's the situation that Sarai finds herself in. It's that place. Things are threatening to to work against the promise, like she's 75 years old. Are you sure, Lord? And God is clearly delaying the fulfillment of His promise. Ten years now. God, we thought that, you know, when you came and said that, that, you know, we'd take a pregnancy test the next couple of weeks and be good to go. We thought the child would be ten by now. Nine by now. Going on. This is this is where she is. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So this is from the perspective of Sarai. Okay, we're going to be brought into her perspective now. Right? This does, it, it could have said it differently as it said it before. Abram had no children. When I talk about Abram right now, okay, we're looking at his wife. The author's going to tell us a story about his wife. So here is her struggle. We're being brought into her struggle. She has not received the promise of God directly, right? She's received the promise of God indirectly through her husband. God came to Abram in Genesis 12 and Abram in Genesis 15. And he went home and told his wife, I'm sure. But God did not come to her directly. He won't come to her directly until chapter 18 and say, no, here I am. This is the deal. And you remember what she does? She giggles. She laughs. 
But right now, this is just coming to her through her husband, Abram. So she probably didn't have this, this, the same didn't have the same experience to lock into that her husband did. But we know that she wanted a child before this promise even came. And can you imagine the pressure? I just want to sympathize with her a bit here. You imagine the pressure she felt when her husband comes home and says, God came to me and, and said that he's going to give us a child. Can you imagine the pressure that was on her at this point to have a child? I'm sure she was a typical woman and that she, she felt like everything was her fault. This is my fault. There's something wrong with me. God's coming and talking to my husband, making promises to my husbands, my husband working with my husband. He's coming home sharing this news. I should, I should have a child by now. I don't have a child. What's wrong with me? So what does she do? She comes up with a plan. This is where it goes south. South Pole, south. The second part of verse 2. Or verse 1, I'm sorry. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, those two sentences should not go together. What in the world do those two sentences have to do with each other? She had no children, and she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So what, what is she doing? She's doubting. She's not trusting. She's worried. And so she's looking around and she's trying to figure out how can I get my husband a child? And so she's going to make a plan and she's going to share it with her husband. Let me say this first. Making plans is good. You've heard us talk about this before. It is a good thing to make a plan. This plan is not good. This is a bad, bad plan. But don't take this bad plan as paradigmatic for the Christian life to say, oh, see, this is what happens when we make plans. No, we should make plans. God is very clear about this. We should not fly by the seat of our pants. Some people just want to just react, tempted to just react to everything and have no idea what you're going to do. Some of you don't, you have no idea what you're going to do today, no idea what you're going to do tomorrow, no idea what you're going to do next week or in the years to come. That is a good thing to make a plan. You should have an idea. It's good to get the horse made ready for battle and then the victory will belong to the Lord. It's good for man to plan his way and then the Lord will direct his steps. It is good for us to make faithful plans. In other words, we should plan out how we're going to honor God. This is I'm going to honor God with my day. This is I'm going to honor God with my week. This is I'm going to honor God with whatever years he gives me. And so we do this. And we make plans, good plans. Whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, we're going to do it for the glory of God. So I'm going to figure out and plan out what I'm going to do with my life so that I can honor God in my life. So making plans is good. Now, making plans to help God fulfill his promises are bad. This is what Sarai does. Making a plan to help God. That's the key phrase. Because God doesn't need our help. Making plans to help God fulfill his 
promises are bad. So here's Sarai. She's got something good. She's going to think that the, the ends is going to justify the means because I've got something good that I'm after. God's made a promise. We're supposed to have a child. Okay, so we need to have a child. That's the end. That's the goal. It's a good desire. I want to see that happen. But then she resorts to sinful means to get there. So when you and I make our plans, if sin is a part of your plan, that is wicked. Amen. No, no matter what the end may be and how good you may think things are going to turn out, it is bad to sin on the way to helping God fulfill His promise. Okay, this, is, this would be the, the man who wants to provide for his family so he embezzles money from his company. I was desperate. There was nothing else I could do. I was in a, I was in a, in a corner and I needed to provide for my family. It was us or them. And so I made... No, you sinned. You sinned. And your family has a boat now, but you sinned to get there. So it doesn't matter. The ends do not justify the means. And we're going to see that sin is a part of Sarai's plan. Or this is many, I've, I've seen this happen. I, I've seen young women who desire so badly to be married and aren't married because there's such a shortage of young godly men today. It's not balanced. Young godly women who desire to have a husband and desire to have a family, a God-honoring family. What a great and wonderful thing to desire. But dating someone who is not a Christian is not the way to get there. That is sin and folly. And I, and I, could, I could bring gals who've been married for decades and they could sit down and talk with this young gal and share with you that that was their thinking then. And their life in many ways has been hell ever since. Well, what's the thinking? Well, I'll help. I know it's a good thing. I want a good thing. I'll just help God along. I'll just be a missionary here. And what do you know? He likes to come to church now. Why do you think he likes to come to church? It's not because Jesus is there. Because she's there. We need to be very careful here. God does not need our help. Acts 17.25 Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So that's the way to think of this. God does not, Sarai, God does not need your help. There's a big sign on heaven that says no help wanted. God is like, I am good. I am good. I seriously do not need your help. But we come to God and we're like, you know, I couldn't help Help but notice that you seem like you're in need of some assistance, God. Camille's been taking a look. It's 10 years. I'm 75 years old. Nope, nothing happening here. So it looks like you need some help. So here am I to help you. How asinine is that to offer help to God? Like, what do we give to God that He doesn't already have? I mean, like, what skills do I have to offer Him? I've got nothing, by the way. Well, I can, I can preach. I don't think he needs that. Have you want to come to heaven and I could just preach sermons to you, God? 
I just have no way of I have no way of helping you, God. I have no way of moving this plan along. I have no way of fulfilling these promises. So it is not Christian thinking, friends, and it is not biblical thinking if you apply this logic. Maybe God is waiting for me to take matters into my own hands. Be very careful with that kind of thinking. Oh, maybe God is waiting for me to take matters into my own hands. Be very careful. Make your plans. Obey God. Be responsible. But the fulfilling of His promises is up to God. And the timing of the fulfillment is up to God. And the means by which He fulfills them is up to God. So here's Sarah, right? And she's praying. She's thinking, saying, God, how is this going to happen? How am I going to have a child? And in walks Hagar. And she says, oh, a sign from the Lord. (laughs) You laugh, but... I've operated like that in my Christian life. I was praying and the phone rang and it was this person and so it must mean, wow, wow, really? So here she is. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, here's the plan. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So here's Sarai's plan. Her plan is, I will ask my husband to sleep with and impregnate the nanny. That's who she is. She's an employee, works for the family. She's a servant to the family. I will ask my husband to sleep with and impregnate the nanny. And then when she has the child, she'll be like a surrogate mother, And then when she has the child, I'll take the child and I'll raise this child with my husband, Abram. And in that, we will fulfill God's promise. Now, she's far from God when she's thinking like this. You can see that in the things that she said. One, when she comes to Abram, she said, what is her opening line? The Lord has prevented me from having children. He blames God. It's God's fault. I don't want to do this. I, I would have it another way. But God is forcing my hand. He's, he's, he's backed us into a corner. And so now we've got to figure out a way. I have to figure out a way to get you a child. And so God is forcing me to consider things that I would not otherwise consider. So I'm going to compromise. And I'm going to date this person. And I'm going to take this job and I'm going to cheat on my taxes and I'm going to do this and this and this. And it is not going to honor God and God will not be mocked. He will not be defied. But this is the thinking. God, it's your fault. She may also be saying to herself something like this. My husband has been promised a son, but I'm not sure if we've been promised a son. I mean, she could try and look for a loophole. Because technically, if she goes back to what God told Abram, technically, I'm replaying the promise that you made, God, and you promised to give Abram a son. You don't promise to give Abram and Sarai a son. So maybe you mean for us to look outside the bounds of this covenant marriage and fulfill your promise there. She's looking for a loophole, a way to get things done quicker. 
as well, she's got the support of her community because it wouldn't have been uncommon in this culture for this very thing to happen. You have a servant that's in your home. You need a child. She becomes a surrogate mother for this child. You take that child into your home, raise that child, and they become the heir for your family. That would not have been uncommon in this culture. So here's the thinking that goes into it at this point. And I'll tell you what, 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 what can get you to make a bad decision and then what is sorely missing in making your decisions. In other words, what Sarai does is she says, listen, uh, everyone's consenting here. Okay, I'm good with it. Abram, Hagar, there's, there's consent here. Uh, no one's getting hurt. Right? These are the kinds of things that we think about when we're thinking about big decisions that we're going to make, plans that we're going to make. No one gets hurt, and we're not going to go to jail for it. And that's about the standard, typically. Hey, if it's consensual, what's the big deal? If no one's getting hurt, what's the big deal? If, if there's no civil laws against it, what's the big deal? So that is not our standard. What's missing from that is what does God say? What does God say? What is in His Word? What is God's standard? Okay, this is a bad plan. Why is this a bad plan? Not because there's not consent. Because there is. Not because people are, are getting hurt. Because nobody's getting hurt. Not because there, there's a civil law against it. There is no civil law against it. This is a wicked plan because God says it's a wicked plan. This is a bad plan because it involves sin. So our plans, friends, when we make plans, when we make decisions, it should not be based on our perception, even our perception of what is right and wrong, because our conscience can get seared. Not our perception of what is right and wrong, not our perception of of what's hurtful and what's not hurtful, and not laws that we have around us in place. Our standard is the Word of God. Our law is is the Word of God. Listen, laws around us are going to change. Your conscience may even change, but the Word of God will not change. It will not change. The rules are what they have been and what they will be. God's Word is the standard. Abram and Sarah should be looking at this and saying, this is not how God intends to build families. This is like a Jerry Springer episode who's my baby's daddy this is terrible this is not how god intends to build families their way to building a family is sexual sin that's what they're going to resort to they're going to resort to sexual sin and sexual sin is any sex anything sexual that defiles the marriage bed she want to know what is that? How far is too far? What's not? Anything, anything that defiles the marriage bed. And the marriage bed belongs to one man and one woman. And so anything outside of that defiles the marriage bed. Anything outside of that is beyond the parameters of what sex is and what sex is for. It's therefore missing the mark, and it's sin. It is not honoring God. It is not glorifying God. The family in the end, you're all together. That's what you're going for. See the good intentions. But the way to get there through sexual sin, this is sinful. And so it is true for us in in our lifetime where sexual sin is, is rampant as well for us today. There will be in our lifetime a myriad of 
of, of, of temptations to tamper with the purity of a marriage bed. I mean, we could make a list, right? We could go on and on and on and on of all these sexual sins that are outside a sexual union between one man, one man and one woman in the marriage bed. And sexual sin is the route they take. Oh, just another, another girl here on the side. What's the harm in that? Well, God has already made clear to them, Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not three become one. Not four become one. Not five become one. Not 1,000 become one, Solomon. That is not what God taught. He does not say, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wives. You, you wonder why Christians make a big deal about and get so uptight about what marriage is. Well, it's not us. It's God. Okay, it's God. This is what God says. This is what His Word says. This is what a marriage is. This is what the marriage bed is. And then Jesus comes along and makes it abundantly clear because Jesus does not come for His brides. He comes for His bride. He doesn't come for all people. He doesn't come for all churches. He doesn't come for all religions. He comes for His church. His bride. He's a one-woman man. And in the end, he gets the girl, not the girls. And then Jesus taught this to his disciples. And it gets passed down to Paul. And then Paul teaches us. This is what marriage is. It's one woman respecting one husband. One husband loving one woman. Laying their lives down for one another. Honoring God. What are they painting a picture of? The relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Then Paul goes so far as to say, when you're picking elders in a church... When you're selecting pastors, here's some qualifications. Who's the right man for the job? What's the first thing he says about that man? He needs to be a one, the Greek says, a one-woman man. Abram, God wants you to be a one-woman man. So there may be many perversions of this one man, one woman in covenant, in a marriage bed. There may be many perversions in any given culture, in any given society that will say that this is okay and this is all right and this is okay and this is all right. But God does not. Amen. God does not. And what's our standard? Is it what's consensual and no one's getting hurt? And if it makes them happy and well, first of all, it's not going to make them ultimately happy. If you love them, help them out. God's word, God's law is the standard. Then the second half of verse 2, perhaps the biggest understatement in your Bible, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. No surprise, Abram likes the plan. Okay, he says. Nods his head. I'll take one for the team. <laughs> Abram, seriously? Right? You're not going to speak up? You're not going to say something? 
There's another point already in our story of Genesis where a man listened to his wife when he should not have listened to his wife. And it led to disaster. It led to the disaster. So here's Abram now submitting to this terrible plan. Well, I'm a family man, dear. Whatever's best for the family. 85-year-old man sleeps with the young nanny. That's his wife's plan. And he passively votes yes. Verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. So... After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And then, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked down with contempt on her mistress. So we're going to learn from verse 5 here. This is Hagar despising Sarai, uh, looking down on her with contempt. Verse 5 is going to tell us. So now there is no surprise, right? There's Now we have drama. There's drama in this home. There's tension in this home. This isn't working out the way it was supposed to. I thought this would just be you know one big, happy family. And now it's not. Now there's relational tension. Now there's hot emotions. It is not going well. Honor the Lord. Obey the Lord that it may go well with you. Isn't that what we teach our children? If you disobey God and you dishonor, it's quite simple, sons and daughters. You disobey God, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going well for them. Verse 5. And uh, Verse 4. And he went in, uh, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Which is a quite a thing for her to say. No one is innocent here. But let's remember whose plan this was. I mean, let's remember whose idea this was. She's growing very angry at, at Hagar and Abram. Right, she's, she's blaming him now. How could you? How could you do this? It's like, ah, uh, well, uh, <laughs> you wanted me to. Okay, this is passivity. Or I just, I just did what you told me to do. I just did what I thought you wanted. Whatever you want, dear. Didn't want to argue. Didn't want to make you unhappy. And this is the one time in the whole text she calls on the Lord. And it's to judge her husband. <laughs> these, are, these are her words to God. May you be a judge between me and him. This guy. I can't believe he's done this. Well, this is true. This is true. Sometimes wives will compel their husband to do something and then they will get mad when their husbands do it. This is often a reality in marriage. You should have seen first service. Like every married guy is like just drawing blood, trying to bite his lips so hard. This happens, doesn't it? This happens. 
For a wife will think she knows what she wants. She will compel her husband and push her husband. And sometimes the husband will give in and do exactly what she wants. And she's mad at him for doing it. She's upset with him for doing it. Well, here's the deal, man. If you, if you let your wife talk you into sin, then she should be mad at you. Amen. She should be mad at you. And this is what happened with Abram. He sat idly by while his wife talked him into sin. Was it her idea? Yep. Was it her plan? Yep. Did she initiate? Yep. She instigate this? Yep. Does that mean Abram gets to point the finger at her now and say it's her fault? Nope. Nope. He doesn't have an out because of that. Does this mean that he doesn't deserve her to point the finger at him now? Nope. Might as well be God pointing the finger at Abram. How could you do this? Abram should have led his wife. He should have led his wife. He should have led his wife here. He he should have said, honey, that is a terrible plan. That is is the worst plan I have ever heard in my life. What are you smoking? This This is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Shall we dishonor God this way and then expect blessing from Him? I mean, he should have had just a speech locked and loaded for this kind of a plan. But he does nothing. He does not speak up. The truth is, is that Sarai didn't need and didn't want a husband that just does whatever she tells him to do. She needs and wants a husband who's going to love her and lead her. And husbands, that's what your wives need. That's what my wife needs. I remember early on in our marriage thinking that, 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 that my job was to, to make Kristen happy. And the best way to keep her happy, of course, is to give her everything that she wants and to, and to, to, do, to fulfill all of her desires and to, what, what, is, what is the plan? And okay, this is the plan. I've just kind of laid down and this is what we'll do. And, and, and learning that that was not helping me. I was not breeding any respect in her of me. Finally came to a point. I don't want you to keep saying whatever you want, dear. I want you to lead me. Oh. Like God says. You guys agree. I see this now. This is what Abram should have done. He should have said, honey, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. End of discussion. In a gracious way, he should have shut that plan down. But he didn't. Now, verse 6, Abram's going to speak again. He speaks twice in the story. The first time was, I vote yes. Second time is in verse 6 and doesn't get any better. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your, your servant, because Sarai came to him and she's like, what do I do? She's really annoying me. She's looking down on me. I don't like this. There's tons of tension. This isn't going well. Okay, what should I do? She asks her husband. Okay, and you never answer whatever you want to do. You go to God's word and you help your wife figure out what God wants her to do. Okay, he doesn't do that. Verse, verse 6. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So the passivity continues. You see the passivity continuing? Do to her as you please. 
whatever you want. Think of it this way. What he does at this point is he hands the mother of his child over to his wife's bitterness. He's not abandoning nasty Hagar here as she gets portrayed. He's abandoning his child and the mother of his child. Plain and simple. Just hands the mother of his child over to the bitterness of his wife. So it's another point, a second opportunity where he should speak up, just like Adam should have spoke up in the garden. He's, he's a very good First Timothy 3, 4 wife here. He is quiet, and there's a quiet and gentle spirit about him. And there should not be a quiet and gentle spirit about Abram at this point. Again, he should speak up and say, listen, we're in a real mess here. I should have never gone along with this plan. Okay, we've dishonored the Lord, and we're in a huge mess. But the, the way out of it is not to sin more. We've got to turn this thing and we've got to start honoring God. And so we need, to, we need to love our neighbor. We need to love her and we need to care for her and we need to love this child. We need to care for this child. Ishmael needs a daddy. I'm his daddy. I always will be his daddy. And so we need him here. This is not what he does. So it goes from, you see, it goes from bad to worse. Now here's what God does, verse 7 and following. God comes in and He rescues them from themselves. Are you in touch as I am with how many times God has saved you from yourself? Just, it could be so much worse than it is, right? I could be so much worse than I am. There are consequences. I stand before you as a man right now and there are consequences that I deserve that have not befallen me simply because of the grace of God. He's just been a good, merciful, and gracious God. He has saved me from myself. So listen now he does. He's going to do it by dealing with this, this, this woman now. And I want you to see the God of all comfort here. The God of all comfort. Here's this young, single, pregnant, uh, abandoned, bad reputation, on and on and on woman who's all alone, who presumably, not sure, doesn't know God, doesn't love God, not sure. But here she is, just wandering now. And, and the God of all comfort is going to come and, and comfort her. And this is going to be an example, I think, we'll, we'll end with this application of how we are to comfort others, how we are to imitate our Lord in this. I think it's unexpected. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. On the way to Shur, that's south of where they are. That means that she's headed south. She's headed to Egypt. Where is she from? She's from Egypt. So here she is abandoned. She's got no place to go. Okay, so she's heading back to her former home. Maybe someone will open their door there. Maybe someone will love her there. Maybe someone will care for her there. At this point, I think we should see that, of course, she's not innocent, but she's probably the least guilty in all of this. Probably the least guilty. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, 
I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, who's saying all this? Verse 7 tells us the angel of the Lord. Big discussion. Big debate. Who is the angel of the Lord? Angel means messenger. Those words can be used interchangeably. So the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And this is one of a few spots in the Old Testament. It's very interesting because it doesn't say a messenger of the Lord, but the messenger of the Lord. Like This is a, an angel or a, a messenger of great prominence. Now, we'll see in a few verses in, in verse 13 that Hagar is going to refer to the angel of the Lord as God. Well, some think, I think they might be right, this is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate, right? He hasn't been born and taken on flesh. This is the pre-incarnate Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity coming down to sit next to a broken woman Next to a well. Have you read John chapter 4? The story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus came to a woman in a very similar situation whose quality of life had all been ruined by her sexual sin. And what does Jesus do? Does He come and start throwing stones at her? Does he push her into the well? Does He pick a fight? No, He, he saves that for all the people in church. <laughs> How does He deal with her? He comes up and he comforts her and encourages her. Well, what does the angel of the Lord here do with Hagar? He comforts her and he encourages her. What did he say? What what does he say to her? And what what should we do when we're with broken and sorrowful, sinful people? God comes, the angel of the Lord said to her, let me read this and we'll understand what this says. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. I should have named one of my boys Ishmael. So he says to him, he says, behold, You are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now listen to what God does here. This is really cool. Okay. Up until this point in the story, no one is happy about this child. You you see that? You hear that? I mean, this baby is the, is, the, is the home wrecker. I mean, this baby is ruining the family. This baby is the reason that Hagar is being driven out in her pregnant state and cast away from Abram's family. Okay, and no one is celebrating the news that Hagar is with child. But you know who's happy about this baby in this womb? God is. And you know who comes down and, and, and sits next to this young pregnant girl on the well and celebrates with her? God does. 
This is a celebratory announcement. Behold. I mean, picture the smile here. You're pregnant. This is how this news is supposed to be received. Always. Always. You're going to have a baby, Lord willing. There's a child, an image bearer of God is being knit together in your womb. This is good news. No one is treating it as good news in this story. No one is celebrating the forthcoming life of this child. No one is happy about it. So here's Hagar, dejected, depressed, alone, abandoned, and God comes down, the angel of the Lord, Jesus perhaps, comes down and sits next to her with balloons. But you're going to have a baby. You should call him Ishmael. This means that God hears you. I hear you, Hagar. I have listened to you. You're not forgotten. I've seen you in your affliction. This is what God is saying. What is growing in Hagar's womb is not a problem. Not a home wrecker. Not an inconvenience. Not a consequence of sin but a reward from God in spite of sin. That's his announcement. So how does she... You think this girl feels loved by God. Look what she does and says now. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Which means that she went home and told this story. And Abram believed that she had been visited by the same God. Because he adopts that name. So what? What 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 does what truth does she understand after this interaction with the angel of the Lord? It's very clear. God sees me and God hears me. God sees me and God hears me. She named the well where she interacted with the angel of the Lord. She names it the well of the living one who sees me. She assigns a name to God, El Roy, which means God of seeing. And she names her son Ishmael, which means that God hears. So there's anything that she needed to know, abandoned and alone, not knowing what the future held. It was God sees you. God hears you. God loves you. I mean, we're tempted to think that he doesn't, right? When things are not going well. You've been in a sorrowful place like Hagar was? Have you been tempted as I have to say, God, where are you? Are you tuned in? Are you checked in? Are you with me? 
I thought those thoughts. Felt ashamed later. Felt those thoughts. Because the, the idea goes, well, if you see me and if you hear me, then you would change all this. You'd change my circumstance. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. The reason I must be here is you don't see me and you don't hear me. And that's not biblical thinking. That's not how God operates. No, He does. In your sorrow and in your weeping, God sees you and God hears you. Some of you are struggling right now. Some of you are sorrowful right now. Some of you are weeping right now. And you need to know God sees you. If you are here and you are a child of God and you are racked with sorrow right now over, over who knows what, may it just be between you and God. You can know God knows you, God loves you, God sees you, God hears you. You take comfort in that. He's the God of all comfort. And the truth is, isn't it, that if you're a Christian in touch with reality, you're always going to be sad. Well, that, that just runs. That's not much of a sales pitch, <laughs> but it is true. You'll ultimately be happy in Christ, which is happier than you could ever be, and you'll be headed to a place with only happy tears and no sad tears. We, we can go down and on and on and on and and and, and joy beneath it all. But, but the Christian life is just going to be a life of sorrow. You you know too much. You know too much. There's no going back. You know, we're, we're all dead in sin. I watched this show. Wouldn't recommend it, I suppose, but I think it's amazing. Called The Walking Dead. Now, one of the things I've thought of when I'm watching this show, I mean, here are these few people and they're surrounded by this zombie apocalypse. So you know what? Is it really all that different? I mean, do we really see the world for what it is? Do we really understand that we are all dead in sin? Do we really understand how hopeless we all are apart from God? Do we really understand that our friends and family that do not Jesus do not know Jesus? Do we really believe and understand the danger that they are in? If we do, friends, there is going to be a lot of sorrow for us. Be a lot of weeping, weeping over our circumstances, weeping over our sin, weeping over uh, uh, sin of others that are close to us, weep, weeping for those who are lost, weeping for uh, the suffering and the trials that God brings to grieve us. Just give you a lot of Weeping. That's why Second Corinthians six ten says we're people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. But it's always sorrowful and always rejoicing. But we know too much. A lot of things worth being sad about and sorrowful over. But you know we are at the same time the happiest people on earth. We have so much joy. But it's not joy instead of sorrow. That's backwards. It's not joy instead of sorrow. Christ doesn't bring us joy to replace our sorrow. He brings us joy alongside our sorrow. 
The sorrow doesn't dissipate until we're on the other side of heaven. The sorrow will remain, friends. That's okay. And it's okay to cry. And it's okay to weep. But what does God do? He's the God of all comfort. And it says in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, that God comes and comforts those who are afflicted. And why does He do it? He comforts those who are afflicted so that they would comfort others who are afflicted. So God comes down and sits down at a well next to Hagar so that Hagar would go sit down on a well next to someone else. God comforts you and God loves you so that you would go and, and comfort someone else. Now, I know that this is not good Christian etiquette because when people around us are suffering, we want to ignore it or we want to change the subject or we want to not think about it. And people who cry all the time are really awkward to be around. <laughs> that was funny. It's because I have a friend here who, you know, good friends were uh, college roommates, disconnected for years, and then reconnected several years ago. And the first year, all he did was cry. (laughs) That was it. Just was weeping. He's okay with that. So our tendency is, uh, pray for you, brother. Kind of push that away. That's awkward. That's uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. It's because there's nothing to say. What are you going to say? You're not supposed to fix it. What does Romans 12.15 say? I think it's a great application. Romans 12.15 says to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Listen, if you've got friends who are weeping and friends who are sorrowful, and I would hope the same for you, uh, don't, don't just tell them that you'll pray for them. Don't don't just ignore them. Don't try to talk them out of being sad. Don't talk them out of being sad. Let them be sad. It's terrible what's happening to them. They should be sad. And you know what? You should be sad with them. You should cry with them if God would bring tears. You should weep with them, at least in your heart. You should not tell them everything is going to be okay and everything's going to turn out fine and I'm sure things will turn around. They might not. You can tell them God is good and God's working and God will fulfill those promises, but you don't know what is going to happen with circumstances. All these things that we do because we just want to avoid, we just want to avoid that awkwardness. We just want to avoid sadness and avoid sorrow. We, we just, you just need to hit it head on. We're going to be sorrowful and always rejoicing. It does not say to rejoice with those who rejoice and, and, and try to help those who are weeping stop weeping. That's not, that's not the verse. So what am I supposed to do with them? You're supposed to park your butt at the well next to them and sit with them and listen to them and accept that you're probably not God's gift to them to turn this all around in five minutes. And you should just listen. If you want to cry with them, cry with them. You want to be sad with them, be sad with them and comfort them. And encourage them as God has done for you. Well, God does that for Hagar. And she leaves, she obeys him, and she goes back. Look at where she went back to. Where she was not wanted, where she was not loved, where she was just kicked out. And yet she goes there. She goes there with, with no, no security there. But, but she's good. Why? God sees me. God hears me. God is with me. God loves me. We need that.
Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together today. God, thank you for being the God of all comfort. Thank you for comforting us. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you for God, for working our life in such a way that when there are things in our life that we are sorrowful about, you, you seem to, to help us to see just how sorrowful they are. God, and thank you that you comfort us and that you love us the way that you do. We're thankful that you see us and that you hear us. God, you know that we're tempted we're tempted to think that you don't. We're tempted to think that you've gone. We're tempted to think that we're alone. And we're just not, Lord. So remind us. Remind us like you did Hagar next to that well. That we are your uh, chosen, known, loved, accepted, forgiven, cherished people. As we drink this juice and eat this bread today in our time of communion, God, may it be to our hearts what it is, a sign, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. Take us back to the source of all comfort. Take us back to the work of Christ on the cross that He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become Your righteousness. So fill us with love and awe and wonder at this. We love you, God. We give you all thanks and all praise and all glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.